Churchill helped in large part to make possible the anniversary we're celebrating this week. It was 68 years ago, on June 6, 1944, that the Allied forces landed on the shores of Normandy at dawn. This decisive battle, as you all know, ended Hitler's dream of Nazi domination. When you think about it, it was Churchill and his words that first galvanized and sustained British morale in the face of impossible odds. Who's not felt their backbone stiffen and nodded their head in agreement upon hearing Churchill defiantly declare, if you're going through hell, keep going? See you is going to tell you many of these things later on, but I just wanted to give you just a taste of it. Churchill once described the British people as having a lion's heart. He said that he was the lucky one who was called upon to give the roar. Let's hope that Churchill's roar will reach each and every one of you in this room, inspiring you to reach high and to hope deeply. And who better to reintroduce us to the legacy of his roar than Sir Winston's granddaughter, my friend, Celia Sands. Well, ladies and gentlemen, thank you all so much for coming. It's a real treat to be here in the Morgan Library, which is absolutely beautiful. And I'm honored and delighted to have been invited to give the inaugural lecture of the Tina Santi Flaherty Literary Series. I don't know where Tina's got to there. Thank you very much for your powerful introduction. I'd like to thank William Griswold and the Morgan Library and Museum for hosting us this evening, Hunter College for organizing the series, and, of course, Tina for her generous sponsorship. Some of you may have already seen the exhibition, but for those who haven't, it is fabulous, with a wonderful array of exhibits, from the heartbreaking childhood letters to the papers of honorary citizenship of the United States of America. This is the result of a very happy partnership between the Churchill Archives at Cambridge and the Morgan Library. The bulk of the exhibits come from the Churchill Archives, whose director, Alan Packwood, is the brilliant curator of the exhibition. From the National Trust at Chartwell, and as a generous loan from the private collection of Kenneth Rendell. I'd like to thank them all and all those who have been involved in this extraordinary exhibition, so aptly called The Power of Words. This evening, I will bring you some examples of how my grandfather inspired and led by his very powerful words. In this election year, you will hear more than enough words from politicians whose very fate hangs on the construction and delivery of their speeches. Maybe some of them will take a bit of note and advice from how Winston Churchill constructed and delivered his. Most people know that my grandfather was the master of words, spoken and written. 
and as a politician, his speeches became some of the most famous ever made. As a journalist and author, he supported his family and his own lifelong extravagant lifestyle. He famously stated here in New York at the Plaza Hotel, I am a man of simple taste, easily satisfied by the best. Whenever he needed some money, he picked up his pen. His children used to say, we lived from pen to mouth. (laughs) During his life, he wrote more than 44 books and countless articles and was awarded the Nobel Prize for Literature. The impact of my grandfather's words during World War II was more powerful than any weapon. As Tina said, on making Winston Churchill an honorary citizen of the United States of America, President Kennedy said he mobilized the English language and sent it into battle. Whether speaking in the House of Commons or on the radio, the effect was profound. So many people have told me how his speeches gave them hope when they were in despair. And wherever they listened, whether here in the United States, whether in London during the Blitz, or hiding out in occupied Europe, listening to radios, which would have been their death sentence if they'd been discovered. Everyone remembers those moments. And for some people, it was their first conscious moment, their listening with their parents to the ritual of Winston Churchill on the radio. He knew that the only way that he could inspire people was to make them believe that he believed that victory was possible. As time passed following his death in 1965, Winston Churchill became an historical figure who fewer and fewer people could actually remember. Then, following the tragic events of September the 11th, he stepped right out of the history books and back onto the international stage where he had spent so much of his long life. Leaders everywhere called on the inspiration and example of Winston Churchill. The speeches of President George W. Bush and Prime Minister Tony Blair rang out with Churchillian tones, confirming that Winston Churchill's inspiring leadership are as relevant today as they were in 1940. Whether faced by the global financial crisis, the Eurozone disaster, or the war in Afghanistan, the constant cry is, we need another Churchill. So why is it that leadership is so sought after now? It's always important there seems to be something about the present age that makes it more important than ever. The answer, I believe, is change. The world is always changing, but every so often it goes through a period of very rapid change. Change that can be disorienting. Change that can seem threatening. Where are things going? What kind of world will we be living in, in 20 years from now, or even in five Leadership is about change. The very best leaders are those who are, not, who are able to deal with change 
but can also anticipate it. Leaders who can make sense of what is happening and look ahead, explain the situation to others, and offer a vision of how to move forward. The 1930s and 40s were such a time. Churchill was not only able to lead his country in its darkest hour, he was also the most articulate interpreter of what was happening and what was likely to happen. He saw before most what Hitler represented and what Hitler wanted to do. A few years later, he saw more clearly than most what the post-war period would be like. And his famous Iron Curtain speech, much criticised at the time, showed him at his perceptive best a leader who was every bit as good at analysing developments as he was at leading people through them. These skills come to the fore in times like the present when everything seems to be changing from safety in our cities to the climate to the internet-driven revolution in the way we do business and in the way we relate to our friends and even to our families. These are times when we need the best leadership we can get to deal with the threats that face us and to seize the opportunities. Churchill became Prime Minister at the age of 65 in the most daunting circumstances imaginable. Hitler's blitzkrieg was overrunning continental Europe. Britain was about to stand alone. Strong leaders welcome a challenge. This is how Churchill described his emotions at the time. I felt as if I were walking with destiny and that all my past life had been but a preparation for this hour and for this trial. Eleven years in the political wilderness had freed me from ordinary party antagonisms. My warnings over the last six years had been so numerous, so detailed, and were now so terribly vindicated that no one could gainsay me. I could not be reproached either for making the war or with want of preparation for it. I thought I knew a good deal about it all, and I was sure I should not fail. Therefore, although impatient for the morning, I slept soundly and had no need for cheering dreams. Facts are better than dreams. In this speech, my grandfather was reflecting the fact that his whole life had been devoted to inspiring leadership. The most well-known examples of leadership in his life come from his political and military activities, but these translate seamlessly into any other sort of leadership. The main pillars of his leadership were courage, integrity, vision, and communication. Of these, the prime characteristic was courage, of which he wrote, Courage is rightly esteemed the first of human qualities, because it is the quality which guarantees all the others. It is moral rather than physical courage that is most important for great leaders. For upon it depends the leader's integrity. Integrity is probably the element that is most questioned in politics today. No one displayed greater integrity than Churchill, the politician. He believed in and followed certain principles, but at the same time reserved the right to change his mind, which he explained like this. 
The only way a man can remain consistent during changing circumstances is to change with them while reserving the same dominating purpose. In 1904, as a young politician, he preached the merits of free trade at a time when his party was bent on protection. Despite the fact that he had a bright future in the Conservative Party, he took the considerable political risk of leaving that party and joining the Liberals, with whom he remained for 20 years. Twenty-five years later, having by then filled half a dozen high posts, first as a Liberal and then once more as a Conservative, which he described as he'd ratted and then he'd re-ratted, Churchill's integrity led to his exclusion from office for the next ten years. At the beginning of the 1930s, he opposed the government's plan to grant India near independence within the British Empire. And we may judge with hindsight that he was mistaken over India, but what was not in doubt was his integrity. He remained at odds with his party through the 1930s as he warned unsuccessfully against the threat of a resurgent Germany. As a result, he was left in the wilderness until he was found to be indispensable to his country in its darkest hour. Then, with Churchill as Prime Minister, the nation saw leadership as it had never been seen before. And he addressed Parliament honestly. I would say to the House, as I said to those who have joined the government, I have nothing to offer but blood, toil, tears, and sweat. We have before us an ordeal of the most grievous kind. We have before us many, many long months of struggle and of suffering. You ask, what is our policy? I will say, it is to wage war by sea, land, and air, with all our might and with all the strength that God can give us. To wage war against a monstrous tyranny never surpassed in the dark and lamentable catalogue of human crime. That is our policy. You ask, what is our aim? I can answer in one word, victory. Victory at all costs. Victory in spite of all terror. Victory however long and hard the road may be. For without victory there is no survival. There were those who, unable to see the way to victory, were disposed to make a deal with Hitler. Stamping his leadership on a wavering government, Churchill explained the grim situation before concluding, if this Long Island story of ours is to end at last, let it end only when each of us lies choking in his own blood upon the ground. There was spontaneous approval. Britain would fight on. We shall go on to the end. We shall fight in France. We shall fight on the seas and oceans. We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. There are two lessons to be learned for all leaders from Churchill's political career through the 30s. From his stand over India, not to persist in unwinnable battles. 
But from his opposition to appeasement, to stick to one's guns when faced with a threat to one's fundamental interests. As a leader, Churchill's vision ranged over a wide field. Most significant was his strategic vision of American involvement in the defense of the free world. As early as August 1940, the House of Commons heard his views on this subject. Undoubtedly, this process means that these two great organizations of the English-speaking democracies, the British Empire and the United States, will have to be somewhat mixed up together in some of their affairs for mutual and general advantage. For my own part, looking out upon the future, I do not view the process with any misgivings. I could not stop it if I wished. No one can stop it. Like the Mississippi, it just keeps rolling along. Let it roll. Let it roll on full flood, inexorable, irresistible, benignant, to broader lands and better days. My grandfather's political vision had been demonstrated as a young journalist in 1900, when during the Anglo-Boer War, the tide turned in favor of the British. He advocated magnanimity towards the defeated enemy. The establishment was outraged by this, and the war continued. It would take almost 50 more years before magnanimity would be generally recognized as the best policy for the victorious. When in 1911 he became First Lord of the Admiralty, he met the sort of problem and opposition that newly appointed leaders often encounter. There was the need to reorganize the staff of the most powerful navy in the world. This was a task that Churchill carried out with tact, moving some respected figures sideways rather than retiring them in order to retain their support. The larger the vision, the greater the catastrophe, should it fail. Churchill's vision in 1915 fueled the only original strategic idea in World War I. This was the Dardanelles campaign in the eastern Mediterranean, designed to outflank the enemy and secure victory without the slaughter of trench warfare. It failed largely because Churchill's authority did not match the responsibilities he had assumed. Here is a lesson for ambitious leaders, impatient to make their mark. It was the lowest point in his life. My grandfather said, I thought it would kill him. He had the Dardanelles in mind when he later wrote, everyone threw the blame on me. I have noticed they nearly always do. I suppose it's because they think that I shall be able to bear it best. When visionaries fail, they inevitably bounce back. At the age of 41, Churchill rejoined the army and went to fight in the trenches. Within three years, he was back in the cabinet. He once said something that I think a lot of us can really relate to. I am always ready to learn, although I do not always like being taught. The Dardanelles rankled with him ever after, but he applied the lessons from it when, in World War II, he ensured that all the elements of the war effort were fully coordinated. In 1959, when I was cruising with him on Aristotle Onassis' yacht in the Mediterranean, 
It was decided to go through the Dardanelles at dead of night so that he wouldn't know where we were. (laughs) The next morning, he said to me, they thought I wouldn't know where we were. But of course I did. He was not easily fooled. And of course, he loved maps, maps, so would have been following the journey from point to point on his maps. The list of Churchill's visionary innovations is long and varied. Pension schemes and social security in the early 1900s, the tank and naval aviation in World War I, the promoting of radar before World War II, and the Mulberry Harbors for D-Day are just a few. He was never frightened of questioning the experts and experimenting. At the end of World War II, he found himself once more out of office. But by then, he commanded the world stage, and his warning of the Cold War in a speech at Fulton, Missouri, epitomized his courage and his vision. He knew that in the aftermath of war, his words would not be what the Western world wanted to hear. From Stettin in the Baltic to Trieste in the Adriatic, an iron curtain has descended across the continent. Behind that line lie all the capitals of the ancient states of Central and Eastern Europe. Warsaw, Berlin, Prague, Vienna, Budapest, Belgrade, Bucharest, and Sofia. All these famous cities and the populations around them lie in what I must call the Soviet sphere. What is needed is a settlement, and the longer this is delayed, the more difficult it will be, and the greater our danger will become. From what I have seen of our Russian friends and allies during the war, I am convinced that there is nothing they admire so much as strength, and there is nothing for which they have less respect than for weakness, especially military weakness. At the time, Churchill's words attracted universal criticism, but within a year, his analysis had been widely acknowledged as correct. Vision and courage to challenge convention count for little if a leader cannot convey his or her ideas clearly and convincingly. Even today, 60 years after the event, You can listen to my grandfather's words without ever wondering what on earth did he mean by that. This is what he said when praising the fighter pilots in 1940 during the Battle of Britain. The gratitude of every home in our island, in our empire, and indeed throughout the world, except in the abodes of the guilty, goes out to the British airmen who, undaunted by odds, unwearied in their constant challenge, and mortal danger are turning the tide of the world war by their prowess and by their devotion. Never in the field of human conflict was so much owed by so many to so few. Unlike many modern leaders, he did not try to spin a loss into a win. In 1940, He could have construed the unexpectedly successful evacuation of so many troops from Dunkirk as a victory, as it has sometimes been portrayed. Instead, he told the story straight with this warning to Parliament. Sir, we must be very careful not to assign to this deliverance 
the attributes of a victory. Wars are not won by evacuation. Great leaders bring out the inner strength that people often do not know that they possess. It's been said that Hitler could persuade you that he could do anything, but that Churchill could persuade you that you could do anything. Churchill gave each and every man and woman an heroic role to play, and this is how he challenged the British people to give their all when Britain stood alone. I expect that the Battle of Britain is about to begin. Upon this battle depends the survival of Christian civilization. Upon it depends our own British life and the long continuity of our institutions and our empire. The whole fury and might of the enemy must very soon be turned on us. Hitler knows that he will have to break us in this island or lose the war. If we can stand up to him, all Europe may be free and the life of the world may move forward into broad, sunlit uplands. But if we fail, then the whole world, including the United States, including all that we have known and cared for, will sink into the abyss of a new dark age, made more sinister and perhaps more protracted by the lights of perverted science. Let us, therefore, brace ourselves to our duties, and so bear ourselves that if the British Empire and its Commonwealth last for a thousand years, men will still say, this was their finest hour. Present-day leaders in all spheres can take heart from the fact that Churchill was not a naturally gifted speaker. Early on, he tried to overcome a speech impediment, a difficulty in pronouncing the letter S. He went to see a specialist, saying, I'm in the army now, but will enter politics later. I cannot spend my whole life avoiding the letter S. In fact, his difficulty with the letter S never went away and became a trademark for him. So people listening to him on the radio were absolutely certain that it was him. As a young man, he could be heard walking up and down reciting, the Spanish ships I cannot see, for they are not in sight. He learned from others. Age 21, passing through New York City, he struck up a friendship with Burke Cochran, a distinguished lawyer and politician. Cochran said, of, Churchill said of Cochran's political oratory, he was my model. I learned from him how to hold thousands in thrall. How modest he was, to put it at only thousands. As an orator, Churchill's prodigious memory was a tremendous advantage, but it did not remove the need for preparation. He spent hours rehearsing his speeches in front of a mirror. And once, his valet thought he heard my grandfather calling to him from the bath. And on inquiring what was needed, he was told, I wasn't speaking to you. I was addressing the House of Commons. <coughs> in his acceptance speech for an honorary degree at Harvard, he raised a laugh from the audience when he seemed accidentally to say the infernal combustion engine. 
He quickly corrected it to the internal combustion engine, but his secretary told me she'd overheard him practicing the mistake on the train from Washington. My grandfather did not use speechwriters. <coughs> his close friend, F.E. Smith, the Earl of Birkenhead, said Winston has devoted the best years of his life to making impromptu speeches. There are let- lessons here for modern leaders whose speeches often betray their origin in committee. Communication skills apply not only in the delivery of soaring speeches, but also in commonplace, everyday events. Churchill's wit was a useful part of his armory. When an opposing speaker in a parliamentary debate noticed that Churchill was apparently dozing, he said, must you sleep when I am speaking? Churchill, without opening his eyes, replied, no, it is purely voluntary. (laughs) And reflecting on his less-than-perfect education when receiving an honorary degree in Miami, he said, no one has passed so few examinations and received so many degrees. (laughs) He had great respect, an almost old-fashioned respect for women, but from time to time they drove him to make them the object of his sharp wit. One day he was at a state banquet in, in Richmond, Virginia, and chicken was being served. So when the butler came round the table with the dish and said, what part of the bird would you like? He said, I'd like breast, please. The rather stuffy lady sitting next to him said, Mr. Churchill, in this country we call it white meat or dark meat. <laughs> the next morning she received a little, little bunch of flowers with a note saying, Please pin this on your white meat. (laughs) Now, I know sometimes when we go... I know definitely people like hearing the speeches that they know, and people sometimes like hearing the tunes that they know best. So, you know, I'm afraid I'm going to tell you two two things that he said, which a lot of you will know, but those of you who don't know ought to know them. One day in the House of Commons, Bessie Braddock, a Labour MP, went up to my grandfather and said, Winston, you're drunk. To which he replied, yes, madam, but you are ugly. (laughs) And tomorrow morning, I will be sober, but you will still be ugly. (laughs) And the first American woman to become a a member of the House of Commons, Lady Astor, said, Winston, if you are my husband, I would poison in your coffee. To which he immediately replied, and if you are my wife, I would drink it. (laughs) Serious speeches were leavened with humour. When surveying the war in a speech to the Canadian Parliament at the end of 1941... He recounted his words to the government of France. When I warned them that Britain would fight on alone, whatever they did, their general told their prime minister and his divided cabinet, in three weeks, England 
will have a neck wrung like a chicken. <laughs> Some chicken. <laughs> And without pomposity, his wit dealt with the sort of tricky situation in which leaders sometimes find themselves. One day, he was sitting at the margins of a wartime conference, taking a bit of time off, and an inebriated GI put his face around the door and said, Hey, fatso, where's the John? (laughs) To which the Prime Minister replied, Turn left down the passage, and there's a door on the right marked gentleman. But please, don't let that deter you. (laughs) I was told that story in the White House by someone who'd been there. Courage, integrity, vision, and his ability to communicate were the main pillars of Churchill's leadership. But there were other important elements. In his first six weeks as Prime Minister, he made five dangerous flights to France in the hope of putting steel into the French government, which was on the point of collapse. This was just the beginning. During the course of the war, he went to Canada three times, to Moscow twice, here to America six times, to Tehran, Casablanca, and Yalta, in addition to visit the battlefronts of the Western Desert, Italy, and Normandy. On one occasion, he was in an unpressurized aircraft, and he insisted that the oxygen mask was adapted so that he could breathe in the oxygen and puff away at his Havana cigar. When he became prime minister in 1940, he relegated to the past the mistakes of his predecessors by declaring to Parliament, if we open a quarrel between the past and the present, we shall find we have lost the future. Of allies, he said, when one looks at the disadvantages attaching to alliances, one must not forget how superior are the advantages. In business, as in war, pragmatism will will, will determine the best form of alliance. When Russia was invaded by Germany in 1941, he reconciled his support for Russia with his loathing of communism by declaring... If Hitler invaded hell, I would at least make favorable reference to the devil in the House of Commons. (laughs) Strong leaders should never appear desperate, as we see from Churchill's courtship of President Roosevelt in the two years of war before Pearl Harbor. With Europe overrun, it seemed that Britain would soon succumb, causing Roosevelt to hesitate in sending the material help which Churchill sought. The Prime Minister's advisers suggested passing British technical secrets wholesale in exchange for more rapid assistance. Churchill demurred, saying, If an exchange is to be arranged, I should like to carry it out piece by piece. In March 1941, the Lend-Lease Act was passed, and Congress thereby fulfilled Churchill's famous plan in a broadcast largely aimed at American audiences. Put your confidence in us. Give us your faith and your blessing. And under providence, all will be well. We shall not fail or falter. We shall not weaken or tire. 
neither the sudden shock of battle nor the long-drawn trials of vigilance and exertion will wear us down. Give us the tools and we will finish the job. How does a leader under enormous pressure relieve the stress? This was my grandfather's recipe. Change is the master key. The cultivation of a hobby and new forms of interest is therefore a policy of first importance to a public man. He was a man of many interests, but his favourite diversion was painting. I was with him when he put the final brushstrokes to one of his last paintings, a dazzling still life of oranges and lemons. Whenever I look at it, I hope that he's up there on his cloud, fulfilling his ambition for the afterlife, which was this. I know of nothing which, without exhausting the body, more entirely absorbs the mind. When I get to heaven, I mean to spend a considerable portion of my first million years in painting and so get to the bottom of the subject. All leaders need someone with whom they can discuss their fears and successes, someone who will back them up when they're right and yet tell them when they're getting things wrong. For Churchill, it was his wife, Clementine. In 1940, she became so alarmed that his temper was suffering under the strain, and even though she was living under the same roof, she wrote him a letter. Perhaps she thought she wouldn't get the message out if she said it in person. My darling, I hope you will forgive me if I tell you something which I feel you ought to know. One of the men in your entourage, a devoted friend, has been to me and told me that there is a danger of you being generally disliked by your colleagues and subordinates because of your rough and overbearing manner. It seems your private secretaries have agreed to behave like schoolboys and take what's coming to them and then escape out of your presence, shrugging their shoulders. Higher up, if an idea is suggested, say at a conference, you are supposed to be so contemptuous that presently no ideas, good or bad, will be forthcoming. I was astonished and upset because in all these years, I've been accustomed to all those who have worked with and under you, loving you. I said this, and I was told, no doubt, it's the strain. My darling Winston, I must confess that I have noticed a deterioration in your manner, and you are not so kind as you used to be. It is for you to give the orders, and if they are bungled, except for the king, the Archbishop of Canterbury, and the speaker, you can sack anyone and everyone. Therefore, with this terrific power, you must combine urbanity, kindness, and, if possible, Olympic calm. I cannot bear that those who serve the country and yourself should not love you as well as admire and respect you. Please forgive your loving and devoted and watchful Clemmy. Without my grandmother, history might have taken a different course. All modern leaders can benefit from the example set by Winston Churchill. I believe that his principles of leadership are as relevant today as they were in 1940 and are an inspiration to anyone in any field who aspires to lead. I'm going to finish 
with a poem which is a tribute written by his friend and colleague Duff Cooper, which really summed up how the British people, despite voting him out of office after the war, felt about him. And I think many people here in America felt the same. When ears were deaf and tongues were mute, you told of doom to come. When others fingered on the flute, you thundered on the drum. When armies marched and cities burned and all you said came true, those who had mocked your warnings turned almost too late to you. And doubt gave way to firm belief and through five cruel years, you gave us glory in our grief and laughter through our tears. When final honours are bestowed and last accounts are done, then shall we know how much was owed by all the world to one. Thank you very much.